Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, back with another Euripides re-airing of episodes because why in the Hades not? I am perpetually blown away by his treatment of mythological women. And though Iphigenia among the Taurians shares a lot of really fascinating details with the Helen, the Alcestis is <laughs> something else entirely. Covering this play was like a fever dream. It is one of the most bizarre and weird things I've ever read from the ancient world. So I thought, why not end the year with revisiting all three parts of this wild ass series on this wild ass play? Just to remind you all of the time that Euripides wrote what can really only be described as a tragic comedy. Iphigenia and Helen might have a lot of fun comedic elements, but the Alcestis is <laughs> gods. It might as well have been a comedy. So sit back and enjoy this wildly brilliant nonsense to just cap off your 2023 and we'll talk again next year this is episode 161 you could say she's living and she's dead Euripides's Alcestis.
Our story begins in Phiri, in Thessaly, the north of the Greek mainland. There is the king, Admetus, and Alcestis, the queen. But the play doesn't begin with them or anyone from their palace. Instead, Apollo walks on stage. But Apollo is not there in his capacity as a god, or rather, not entirely. He tells the audience that he is there in Phiri, living in service to King Admetus. Or rather, finishing his service to King Admetus. There was a bit of a kerfuffle with his father, Zeus. Zeus killed Apollo's son, Asclepius, with a lightning bolt, and in return, Apollo killed the Cyclops. Don't try to understand how these things fall into the wider mythology. It'll hurt your head and it doesn't matter. What matters? Apollo's punishment for his crime was to live in service to this king, to Admetus, and that's what he's been doing. He's been working there as a herdsman, of all things, and protecting the house. But Apollo tells the audience, he has learned now, that Admetus is a pious man, and as such, Apollo has saved him from death. Apollo tells the audience that he saved Admetus from death, but it came at a cost. He tricked the fates, a feat in itself. In fact, in Aeschylus's Eumenides, this moment is, is just referenced, and it seems that the tricky god Apollo plied the goddesses of fate with wine in order to sort out this escape from death. He just got the fates drunk, and he secured Admetus a fate free from death. But again, it came at a cost. Adamantus could escape this fate, could escape death, provided he found someone to go in his place, to die for him, to take his spot in the underworld. There is only one person in Admetus's life who agreed to do this, to take his spot in death. His wife, Alcestis. And if you think I'm throwing more information at you than normal, rushing through this play more than I typically would with this much exposition and so little actual detail being thrown out, this is the first 20 lines of the play. Apollo is serving here as a messenger, letting the audience know where they stand, where they find themselves in this story of Admetus and Alcestis. He's setting the scene and he's got some things to spin out. He explains all of this background that Alcestis has agreed to die for her husband, something even Admetus's parents refused to do, and not only that, but today is the day of her death. Now, Apollo says, he will leave the house. He won't stay to witness this death. The gods don't pollute themselves with the death of humans, at least not a god like Apollo. The Chthonic gods, on the other hand, are there to move things along, which is why Apollo now tells the audience that he sees another god approaching. That's how he knows it's time to leave. The god of death, the personification of death, Thanatos, approaches Apollo on the stage. There are only two people on the stage to open this play, and they're both gods. We are off to a strong start, don't you think? Fuck, I love Euripides and everything weird and wonderful that he does with his plays. And this is the weirdest. What are you doing here? Thanatos asks Apollo. Quote, what are you doing hanging about? Are you plotting another crime? Usurping the rights of the gods below? 
He goes on to be more specific about what he's accusing Apollo of, tricking the fates, absolving Admetus of death. Apollo has, in essence, fucked with the natural order of things. He's caused trouble not only for himself, but for the Chthonic deities who handle these matters, for the fates, for everyone. Admetus, not Alcestis, was meant to die, and yet here they are, awaiting her death instead of his. And thus begins an incredible conversation between Apollo, the god of light and prophecy and healing and so much more, and Thanatos, often translated, as in this case, as just death, with a capital D. Thanatos is worried that, once again, Apollo is there to mess with the Chthonic gods to obstruct their power over life and death. Why are you holding your bow? he asks Apollo, thinking Apollo is going to use it for this purpose. I always have it with me, he responds. It's just a habit. Well, you also have a habit of helping this family when you shouldn't, Thanatos counters. Yeah, well, I felt bad for his misfortune, says Apollo. Does that mean you're going to keep another body from me? Apollo, I like to imagine here, rolls his eyes, says, I technically didn't force the first body from you. Thanatos points at the house behind them, where Alcestis is laying, dying, though we haven't seen her or anyone else yet. He asks, quote, why is he up here and not down there? He's swapping his life for his wife's, Apollo says. Oh, I know. I'm going to take her, Thanatos replies. Go ahead, do it. I'm sure I couldn't convince you otherwise. No, you couldn't persuade me not to kill her, Thanatos replied. And in this translation, it notes that he did so sarcastically. A god of death after my own heart. They go on, and I will do my best not to summarize every line here like I have been, but Euripides' dialogue is so good, it makes it hard. In any event, Apollo clarifies that he isn't asking to free her from death entirely, but perhaps she can reach old age before she dies? No, Thanatos makes very clear, adding, quote, Like you, I enjoy my rights. When you're the god of death, you don't have a lot of power in the world beyond, well, death. He also tells Apollo that when people die young, he grows more prestigious. They continue to debate this, Apollo noting that if she does get old, she'll bring a lot more riches to her when she dies, to which Thanatos counters that such a law privileges the wealthy. Eat the rich. He doesn't say, but I'd like to think he does. Which, I mean, honestly, he might as well, because he explains that if that were the case, rich people could essentially buy a longer life. Was Euripides a socialist? No, but I love him anyway. They're slowing down now, in their back and forth on the subject of poor Alcestis's life, when Thanatos notes that, quote, you can't have everything you're not entitled to. <laughs> the shade. Fucking love this dialogue so much. And reminder, because you just know I want to say the word, this back and forth, this quick dialogue in Greek plays is called stichomythia. And they are rocking it. But finally... Apollo gives his last short speech on the subject, saying that, in the end, Thanatos will indeed give in to these demands. He explains that a man will arrive here in Phiri, a man sent by Eurystheus to Thrace in the north, sent there to bring back horses. That man will be a guest of Admetus, and he will force Thanatos to let Alcestis go. He finishes, quote, I'll give you no thanks, only hatred, when you do then what I ask for now. And in saying this, Apollo spoils the entire play. And then he leaves. 
The gods leave the stage. Thanatos finishes his time there by announcing that death is upon Alcestis, that she will be traveling to the underworld, to his realm, to the world of the dead. And that is the end of the role the gods play in the whole of this tragedy. A tragedy about being pulled to the underworld and brought back out again. The chorus men of Firai come onto the stage, filling the void left by gods of light and dark. Why is the house so quiet? They ask. Why the silence? No one is here to tell us whether or not we should be mourning the death of the queen. Is she still alive? Quote, to us and to all, she seems the best of wives to her husband. The best of wives to her husband? That's something, isn't it? She's not the best to herself, that's for sure, but her husband wanted to live and she was willing to die for him. It's also interesting to start it out this way, beyond the absolutely intriguing and bizarre beginning, with a petty debate between powerful gods. That the chorus arrives with no knowledge of whether or not Alcestis is still alive, that they've been given no direction as to whether or not they should mourn yet, says a lot about how this play is going to go. And they're not done with it. They begin their song, continuing to question whether or not Alcestis remains alive. They sing, quote, Does anyone hear moaning or the beating of breasts? Is there groaning in the house that tells us that it's over? They shift into a back and forth among the chorus. The house wouldn't be so silent if she were dead, one of the chorus notes. Certainly if she is, her body still remains inside, another counters. Do you think so? one asks. What gives you hope? Adamantus couldn't have buried her on his own, one replies. And so they keep discussing the queen and all the signs that they can note, trying to determine whether or not she is alive or dead. They listen, they look around for anything to indicate what's going on, what they might have missed, what exactly is occurring inside the house. They sing of what's happened, the fight between the gods, Apollo's service to Admetus, Admetus's attempts to save himself. Their first song, their introduction, ends with, quote, Already every rite's been tried by the royal pair and for the royal pair. The altars of every god run with the blood of sacrifice. There is no cure for this disaster. Finally, an enslaved woman from inside the palace visits the chorus, and they ask her what they've spent so much time singing and chanting about. Is the queen still alive? This woman's response is iconic. She tells them, quote, You could say of her she's living and she's dead. And get ready, because this unnamed enslaved woman is about to bring us an absolutely incredible speech— I only wish she had a name. <laughs> she speaks with the chorus briefly, explaining that while Alcestis is still alive, she is close to death, it is coming for her, and can't be avoided. The chorus praises her, asking that the woman tell Alcestis that she is glorious in death, the best of wives. And who could say she isn't the best? The woman asks. How could anyone possibly say anything otherwise? Quote, how could any woman show more clearly she honors her husband? She's agreed to die for him. She goes on. The woman explains to the chorus that not only is Alcestis such the perfect, honoring wife, but she's preparing herself for death. It's the woman's job to prepare a body once they've died, washing it and dressing it in finery. Alcestis, though, does this for herself, so that she is ready when she 
finally dies. There's lots to be said about what is meant here morally. It's obviously fucked up in so many ways, and Euripides knows that. Alcestis shouldn't have to die for her husband, but she is, so her story is instead examined within that context. The woman tells the chorus that Alcestis prepared herself and then prayed at the altar of Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, the household. She asked Hestia to watch over her children once their mother is gone, to find her son a loving wife, her daughter a noble husband. And she prayed to Hestia, let them not be like their mother and die young, let them live long and happily. She continues to explain how Alcestis is handling herself on this, her last day on earth. She traveled to the palace, worshipping at all the altars as necessary, before she went to her own bedroom and said goodbye to her bed. She said goodbye to her children, who wept at her feet. She gave them hugs and kisses. She let them know they're loved. And the enslaved people of the palace, too. The woman makes a point to note that Alcestis didn't find a single person, servant or slave, who she didn't wish to grasp hands with and say goodbye to. Essentially, to put it into a single sentence, Alcestis is a very, very good woman. And with that, she transitions to explaining how Admetus and Alcestis are handling it together, how her husband holds on to his wife, begs her not to leave him, weeps, he holds her fading body, her dying body, in his arms. But, the woman adds, Alcestis wishes to see the light of the day one last time. And with that, she tells the chorus that she will return inside with the news that they, supporters of Admetus, are the only ones there outside the palace, and so the couple should come outside. Left alone on the stage, the chorus laments not the death of Alcestis, but the grief of Admetus. They are supporters of the king, after all. Even the enslaved woman knew that. They're most worried for him, the man who will have to deal with the loss of his wife, who will have to live on without her. They call for some way out of his troubles, quote, Deliver it, please deliver. You did before, so be now a savior from death. Put a stop to murderous Hades. And before long, finally, after so much exposition, so much talk of their stories without hearing a single word from either of them, finally Admetus and Alcestis come out from the house and join the chorus on stage in the light of day for Alcestis's last time. Sun and light of the day and sky that swirls with scudding clouds. That is Alcestis's first line of the play, a quote, obviously. What a way to start your own death tragedy, though, don't you think? It's beautiful. She's interesting. Admetus speaks then, bringing things down and noting that, yes, the sun shines and isn't it nice, but what have we done to deserve the hatred of the gods? Which I mean, kind of ironic, dude, because you know she's only dying because you didn't want to. But again, the judgment, or lack thereof, when it comes to Admetus, 
will come later. For now, I'm just too intrigued by this story. Alcestis is lifted up by some of their enslaved people, raised up so she can see. She says, quote, I see two oars. I see the boat on the lake and the ferryman holds in his hand a pole. Charon calls me. Why do you delay? She's being hurried on by Charon, by those Chthonic gods, the gods of the underworld. It's her time. All of this section, by the way, is being sung. Alcestis enters the stage singing, even though we know her to be close to death. She's singing. She's maybe even joyous. She continues to, singing that she is nearly there. She asks that Admetus let her go, lay her down, that her legs are losing strength. She says that Hades is there, night is coming. She sings that it's done, her children have no mother, but, quote, may you live and feel joy, my children. Admetus follows this with his grief, calling out, wishing still that she didn't have to die. But, well, she's not actually all that close to death yet, because she's about to launch into a pages-long monologue. We are not done with Alcestis yet. Or at all, really, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Alcestis announces to Admetus that she wants to share her wishes with him. She then recounts how they got there, how she chose to give her life for his, how she made that call and believes it best for her, for their children, and for him. She laments that his own parents chose not to make the same decision. He'd asked his parents first when he learned that he was to die unless he could find someone to take his place. He asked his parents, because they were older and had no other children. Surely they would want to die for him. Alcestis laments that they declined. If they'd agreed, then their son would have lived a happy life with his wife, who he loves, with his children. And they do. They love each other. So much. That much Euripides makes very clear. This may be a story about questionable morality, among other things, what it means to swap your life with another person's, but it's certainly also a story of a married couple who loved each other with their whole hearts. And that in itself is interesting enough, certainly, when we're talking about Greek mythology, and Greek tragedy for that matter. How many husbands truly love their wives, unconditionally and eternally, and vice versa? After professing her love, her sadness that their lives have to go this way, Alcestis switches to what she wants from her husband. Love our children like I would. I know that you do, she tells him. And, quote, don't marry again and give them a stepmother. She'll be a worse woman than I, and out of envy she'll do violence to your children and mine. She emphasizes this, how a stepmother would handle children that aren't hers, how it would all fall apart. Then she switches to speaking directly to her daughter, who's there with her, though she doesn't speak. She tells her daughter, quote, Your mother won't be here when you marry, won't give you courage when you're giving birth, when a mother's kindness surpasses all, my child. This alone is beautiful and sad, but also just interesting. 
But Euripides writes this in, I just, I love it. Like, not only is this mother addressing her daughter before her son, but she's speaking of things that women would probably have had to deal with alone, just among each other. Things they shouldn't have to do alone and should have their mothers for, because no one else could help them in that same way. It's impressive, I think, that Euripides singled out not only marriage without her mother, but courage in childbirth. She speaks to Admetus again now, and her children with him, saying goodbye, telling him to boast that he had the best wife, that they had the best mother. At this, the chorus interjects, simply, quote, Be certain he'll do this, if he has any sense. I don't hesitate to speak on his behalf. Everyone loves Alcestis, and she knows her own worth, her value to her family. I'm a bit obsessed with her the further I get into her story. She's so strong and interesting, and this is such an early play for Euripides, and even still, he had this interest in writing a woman like Alcestis, a story like this one. I promise I'm trying to rein in my praise of him, but there is only so much I can do. And to be clear, that is not praise of her choosing to die over her husband, but sort of everything surrounding that. Admetus immediately reassures Alcestis that he will do as she says, and very happily. He has no desire to marry again, he tells her. He's had the perfect wife. He has the perfect children. There is no need for more. No one could love as much as he loves Alcestis. He says, quote, My grief for you will endure not just a year, but for as long, dear wife, as I have life. Honestly, he's convincing me of his value here. The gods cause awful shit to happen. Is it his fault? I just don't know. I suppose we'll see as this goes on. Morally questionable, indeed. Like, what are we meant to take from this? Admetus isn't done convincing us that he's a good man, though. He goes on, saying, quote, You gave up all that's dearest to save my life, so it's up to me now, isn't it, to grieve the loss of my wife, a wife like you. He goes on, saying that he won't have any parties, no dinners, there will be no flowers or music in the house. He'll never make himself happier, essentially. He'll never have his spirits raised. All his joy is gone, and he will live forever in mourning, thinking of his wife and how much he loves her. Admetus continues his speech to his dying wife, the love of his life. He says that he will have a skilled sculptor make Alcestis's likeness, that he will bring the statue to their bed, hold it in his arms. It will be a cold comfort, but something is better than nothing. He suggests that maybe he'll see her in a dream. Just that would be some comfort. He says to her, quote, if I'd the voice and songs of Orpheus to entrance Persephone or her husband and win you back, I'd have gone to Hades. Neither Pluto's hound nor ferryman Charon would have stopped me before I'd brought you back into the light. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
This is episode 164. A bit of father-son fighting over who deserves to live. Euripides is Alcestis. Alcestis lays dying, surrounded by her children and husband, she makes Admetus promise one thing. He will never remarry, never subject their children to a stepmother. Admetus agrees very happily. It's the least he can do given his wife is dying in place of him. So he agrees, and Alcestis notes it to their children. She then tells Admetus that, quote, now you are mother to these children in my place. He agrees. Yes, I'm their mother now since they're losing you. He laments. Why is it Alcestis and not him? Why can't he go with her? Now I want to say that these are questions we have answers to. But again, let's give Admetus the benefit of the doubt for now. The family is dealing with so much. They call out, questioning destiny, denying it. Alcestis says that darkness is clouding over her, filling her eyes. Admetus can't face it, but it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter because it's too late. With a last farewell to her children, Alcestis dies there on the stage. And that is the only unambiguous on-stage death in surviving Greek tragedy. It's so unambiguous that Alcestis dies right on stage in this moment that the chorus announces it to the audience. Like, imagine you're watching this play, and honestly with this one you're probably not that familiar with the background of the myth if you've even heard of it at all. And within the first third of the play, the eponymous character dies. She dies surrounded by her husband and children in a dramatic but not remotely over-the-top fashion. It's very staid and real and emotional. She dies and the chorus announces it. And that's not even the end of the sadness that happens before the halfway point of the play. One of her children speaks, cries out, asks what's happened to them now their mother's gone. Quote, my mama has gone below. She's no more in the sunlight. The child goes on, calling out to their mother, begging, pleading. It is so heart-wrenching. And Adventist does little to comfort his child, really just confirming the facts. She is dead. They're alone. But the child continues, ending another short passage with, quote, With you gone, mother, the house lies in ruins. With Alcestis dead, Admetus must prepare her for burial. She began the process, though, while she still lived, because it's a woman's job. And so Alcestis, knowing that she was dying, began to prepare herself for her eventual burial. Admetus has only to finish the task. 
He calls to the chorus and to all the people of Thessaly to mourn Alcestis with him, to cut their hair and wear black robes, not to play music, not a single note on the lyre should be played for a full year. Quote, I'll never bury a dearer corpse than this one, never a woman who's treated me better. She deserves my reverence. She alone gave her life for mine. And with this, Admetus and his children return to their home, leaving the chorus on the stage. The chorus sings of Alcestis, of her death, how she was the best wife, the best woman. They sing of her glory, they hope she's welcomed in the underworld, that she finds a happy home there. They say that she will be sung of all over the Greek world, that songs will be sung in Sparta, in Athens, quote, such is the story your death has left for the singers of songs. Then they sing of their own desire to free her from her fate, that if they could, they would retrieve her from the underworld, away from the river Cocytus, the river of wailing. There's such a good line in here. They say, quote, May the earth fall lightly upon you, lady. May the earth fall lightly upon you. Ugh. The chorus continues their song of Alcestis. They sing of her until they're interrupted by a visitor. A man strides on the stage. He's wearing a lion skin cloak and holding a club. Yes, it's Heracles. That's right, Heracles. Did you remember I mentioned him last episode? That this play fit in with my ongoing Heracles theme of episodes? Ugh. How odd and interesting this thing is. We're not even halfway through. We've had Apollo bicker with literal death. A woman dies on stage in place of her husband and the play is named after her. And then in walks in the most famous hero of all the Greek world. And he's looking for Admetus. Heracles asks the chorus whether he will find Admetus at home. They ask him why he's there. He tells them he's in the process of performing a task for the king of Tyrans, Eurystheus. So we can now sort ourselves into Heracles' story. He's not dead yet. That will come later, obviously. But what he is is in the middle of one of those famed twelve labors. We're very early in his story. The hero is still trying to make up for what he did, how he killed his own wife and children in a fit of divine madness. And so he finds himself there in Thessaly at the home of Admetus, stopping off en route to his next task for Eurystheus. He's on his way to Thrace to steal Diomedes' horses and chariot. The chorus is interested in Heracles' story, but they're also a bit horrified. Don't you know what type of man Diomedes is? They ask him. I've never been there, he replies. You won't get his horses without a fight, they explain. I don't have another option, he counters. I can't say no to these labors. The chorus then explains why they're cautioning him as they are. Those horses eat human meat, they tell him. They tear men to pieces. Heracles doesn't believe them. I mean, they're talking about horses. But the chorus insists, confirming that these are not just any horses. They're more like wild animals. Quote, You'll see their mangers stream with blood. Ares himself is their father, they tell him. 
Of course, Heracles isn't scared. He's seen worse. He basically tells him as much before Admetus joins them on stage, welcoming Heracles to his lands. This play is unique for many reasons, but one of them is that it plays with the line between tragedy and comedy in a very notable way, as if it can't quite decide which it's going for, which is how I want to introduce the last interactions I gave you, but also these next ones between Admetus and Heracles. Admetus welcomes Heracles by wishing him joy, and so Heracles wishes it back to him. This, of course, isn't quite the right fit for Admetus's current state, and when he answers with, I wish, Heracles clocks that not only is Admetus a little down in his welcoming, but his hair is cut short, a sign of mourning. Heracles asks him why this is. He replies that he's about to bury someone who died that same day. Not one of your children, Heracles guesses. No, my children are safe. Your father was quite old, he continues. Nope, he's fine too. And from here, well, they launch into a very odd back and forth, a stichomythia, of quick lines to one another debating who has died. Or rather, Admetus seems hesitant to admit that it's Alcestis. Heracles specifically says, surely Alcestis isn't dead, to which Admetus indicates she's both alive and dead? Confusing, yes, and Heracles is just as confused. They go on and on, with Admetus suggesting it's her, but also not confirming she's dead, instead being supremely weird about it and making things awkward for everyone. Heracles knows Alcestis agreed to die for Admetus. He says as much, to which Admetus replies, quote, If she's agreed to that, how alive is she? And when Heracles replies that Admetus should wait until she is truly dead to mourn for her, Again, not clear on whether the poor woman still lives, Adamantus continues to be bizarre, saying, quote, The one about to die is dead and gone without dying. Like, what? What, Adamantus? Your wife is dead. What? <laughs> it goes on like this. Why are you crying? Who is dead? Heracles asks, trying to get the truth from his friend. A woman, Adamantus tells him. And then again, more back and forth, more Heracles trying to get a straight answer out of Admetus, with Admetus just being truly, deeply weird. In the end, he refuses to admit that Alcestis is dead. Instead, he welcomes Heracles as a guest in his home, even when Heracles tries to get out of it, feeling how incredibly weird Admetus is being, how he's clearly not telling the whole truth. Still, Admetus won't take no for an answer. It is awkward as all fuck, definitely meant to be played for comedy, with that undertone of, your wife literally just died in your arms. And it's not a question of Xenia, either. Heracles makes it very clear that he will move on to another host because it isn't right for him to be there with Admetus in mourning, and Admetus insists that he should still stay. It's just weird all around. Even the chorus finds it utterly bizarre when Admetus finally convinces, or really almost forces, Heracles to stay there as his guest. He's brought inside by some attendants, and then Admetus is left outside with the chorus who say, quote, What are you doing? Burdened by such misfortune, you can bear to play the host? Are you a fool? 
To this, Admetus pulls the Xenia card, but it's pretty clear it isn't applicable here. He has an out. He's in mourning. He won't be deemed a bad host, won't get into any trouble. Instead, he outright lies to Heracles, conceals the fact that his wife's dead body is inside and he's meant to be preparing her, mourning her. Specifically, he's meant to do so for a full year. A full year without uh, celebrations, without feasting, without music. He promised this to Alcestis only moments ago. And now, his eyes wet with tears, he opens his doors to a guest. While in the house, he weeps over the body of his dear wife, dead just now. That's how the chorus begins their antistrophe here, the final bit of their choral song. Once Admetus has entered the house after Heracles, after the chorus has indicated that Admetus straight up lied to Heracles about the situation in the home, about his grief and his state of mourning. And with this, Admetus returns to the stage once more. This time he has his attendants with him who carry Alcestis, prepared for her funeral pyre. Heracles is not with him. He's inside. He still has no idea what's going on. But before Admetus can continue on with his wife's body, the chorus spots his father, Fairies, who is approaching with offerings for Alcestis in death. Fairies addresses Admetus. He says he's there to help his son through these hard times. He's there with offerings for Alcestis, the great wife who sacrificed herself for her husband. Quote, she burnished the reputation of every woman by stealing her heart to do this noble act. Ugh. The martyrdom of Alcestis is growing stronger with every moment of this play. Not brought on by herself, but it is pretty gross the more I read of it. But it feels intentional. It's so over the top. The number of times they mention how great she was, but specifically how great she was for sacrificing herself for her husband. The implication being that he deserves to live over her, and she saw that. Euripides is doing something on purpose here, but it is tough to read all the same. And Admetus, well, faced now with his own father, Admetus reveals a little more about his character. He is not happy to see his father, and even less happy that the man thought to come in mourning for Alcestis. As far as Admetus sees it, his father is the reason Alcestis is now dead. He didn't offer to take Admetus's place, so Alcestis did, and thus... Admetus makes very clear to his father that he is not welcome. He goes so far as to suggest, though it isn't clear whether he's completely serious, that he isn't even the true son of his mother, that he was smuggled into the palace and falsely named their son. He is very, very angry with his parents. And I mean, is that fair? None of this is reasonable. I'm not sure how angry you can be at who did and did not offer to die in your place. 
Though, as Admetus sees it, his parents are old, so one of them should have offered to go in his place. And because they didn't, they're basically dead to him. Admetus goes off on his father and rants for a very long time. He finishes his speech with the lines, quote, What empty prayers for death old people make when they complain about a long life and old age. When death is right there, no one wants to die. Old age no longer seems so bad. Son, whom do you think you're taunting? Is a quote from Fairies' response to his son. He goes on to remind Admetus that he is not a man enslaved by him, nor a servant at all, but his own father. I gave you life is another line that comes in. Fairies is not having Admetus's anger or accusations, and he can give as much as he takes. He proceeds to launch into a speech just as long as Admetus's own, basically calling him out on all of his shit, including, quote, I raised you. I do not owe you my life. I didn't inherit a custom from my father that fathers die for sons. Greeks don't do that. Your good or bad luck is all your own. I'm not normally one to use the phrase burn, but I mean, honestly, that's what this is. Fairies is just immediately there like, no, dude, you don't get to come at me like this just because I wouldn't give up my life because the fates wanted yours to end. This is not how parenthood works, nor is it something that should ever be asked, which I mean, he's not wrong. This is all messy and weird anyway, just the very idea that you can not only beat fate, but that escaping said fate means someone else has to sacrifice themselves. And Admetus seems to feel that his parents should have just happily volunteered for this. This is some toxic shit. Honestly, Fairies' speech is just too good. I've got to share more. He goes on, quote, How have I wronged or deprived you? Don't die for me, and I won't die for you. You enjoy your life. Don't you think your father does? Truly, truly, like, accurate. <laughs> Fairies continues, just fully calling Admetus out, suggesting he's found a new way to cheat death. He can just continue to convince wives to die for him instead. He notes how selfish every bit of this scenario is. Everything Admetus has said and done has been selfish and generally just gross. It really puts it into perspective, this man's love for his wife last episode. Like, sure, he does seem to love her, but in the end, he's the reason she died. He let her sacrifice herself for him when he could have just simply not... He is as selfish as they come. Still, I've changed my tune once before in this play already, so who knows? There's a reason it's a notable tragicomic and that it is morally ambiguous as all hell. That it has this special place amongst Euripides' work as one of his weirdest. This play is special. When Fairies is finally finished, the chorus steps in to chide him briefly, but they actually did the same to Admetus when he finished speaking the first time. It's minimal, too, just sort of lip service to the whole situation. Like, oh, well, we tried to make them get along. We said something, at least. Needless to say, Admetus is not changed by his father's speech. He is much too stuck in his own feelings now, too stuck in his own victimhood to possibly be convinced otherwise. Admetus and his father, Fairies, are not finished with their debate. 
their fight, their bickering, whatever you want to call it. They begin a back and forth that, like so much of this play, is fascinating. Euripides is examining life and death and familial relationships and bonds. He's looking at what it means to be family and what it doesn't mean. He's looking at sacrifice and martyrdom, examining them through these various dialogues, but particularly this one. Admetus questions whether the deaths of the young and the old mean the same, to which Fairies counters, quote, We are obliged to live one life, not two. It's a good line. Then Admetus tries to insult his father by suggesting he's too concerned with a long life, to which Fairies rightly notes, Aren't you burying your wife instead of yourself right this moment? The blame for which, unsurprisingly, Admetus tries to place back on his father. The two men dissolve into straight-up bickering, and with some truly ridiculous claims on the part of Admetus. I want to say that we're really meant to side with fairies here, but I suppose I can never be sure. I think more than anything, Euripides is just examining two sides of this intriguing question of sacrifice and life and death. How far is too far when it comes to familial expectations? Who is actually being selfish here? Who is being ridiculous and unreasonable? I mean, fine, I think it's pretty clearly Admetus, but still, the question is there, and it's an interesting one in itself. In the end, though, it doesn't matter who is being selfish or ridiculous, whether Admetus makes some reasonable points or whether fairies is most righteous and morally superior. It's just about the conversation itself, because, well, they don't agree in the end, they don't make up. Admetus's last line that he shouts as his father walks away from him, leaving Fairi for his own home, are, quote, Rot away in old age as you deserve, you and your wife super nice father-son relationship that definitely doesn't get demolished and then completely left for dead. And, well, that's it for fairies. Just like it that was it for Apollo and Thanatos. He's there, speaking with Admetus, almost just to philosophize, to make some points about their relationship and Admetus's expectations and actions. Admetus is there to counter every one of those points, to yell at his father about how horrible he is not to grow at all, just to yell about how he's ruined his son's life, how both his parents are dead to him now. And that's it. Admetus is left yelling into the void as his father has left the stage. And when his father is finally gone, he turns to the chorus, who have just had to watch all of this happen, Jumping in on the side of both men, or the side of a reasoned, calm argument over a screaming match, they don't comment on the argument now that it's done. They save their words for Alcestis's body, which has just been with them on the stage this entire time. And given the three-actor rule of Greek tragedy, that is, that there was only ever three speaking actors on stage at any given time, along with the chorus in most cases, that means there could have even been an actor playing Alcestis's body just lying there on a stretcher of sorts before the audience. The entire time his father and son were screaming about her sacrifice, about life and death, and who deserves what. It's darkly fascinating, isn't it? This play is so very odd in its structure, its tone, honestly... Most every choice Euripides has made in its creation, broadly. It's just weird. <laughs> but we'll talk more about that next week. For now, Alcestis's body is on the stage, and finally, finally, Adamantus returns his attention to the corpse of his beloved wife, 
looking to, finally, lay her to rest. Admetus and the enslaved people who are attending to Alcestis's body carry her off, off the stage and in the direction of where we're to understand her funeral pyre will be lit. The chorus is left alone on the stage only briefly, before an attendant comes out of the palace and speaks to them and the audience in a soliloquy of sorts. He begins a speech about Heracles. Remember Heracles? Yeah, he's been inside the house all this time, and we're about to find out what he's been up to. And we're about to find out what he's been up to while Admetus fought his father over his wife's corpse. And, well, it hasn't been good. Or rather, it hasn't been appropriate for the grief that's taken hold of the household. Everyone, servants and enslaved people, have been grieving over Alcestis's death in whatever way they are, whether they're grieving the woman or some kindness that she might have brought comparatively. They're grieving, and Heracles is spitting in their faces. The attendant explains to the audience what's gone on. I've served many, many men in Admetus's house, he begins, but none have been so awful as Heracles. He came into the home while the house was grieving, when he saw that Admetus was grieving. He came in anyway, and then he treated the whole of the household as though nothing were wrong, as though it were any other day. He was demanding, asking for any little thing that he might have missed or been forgotten, not being remotely understanding or kind given the situation, but instead demanding and petulant. And add to that, he's gotten drunk. The lush. Okay, the attendant is much more eloquent. Quote, He takes an ivy wood goblet in his hands and drinks the dark and potent wine unmixed until the wine's flame wraps him in its heat. Someone remind me to describe drunkenness as the wine's flame wrapping me in heat from now on. He's drunk and rowdy, the attendant goes on. He's bellowing out a song with no discernible melody. Quote, singing without regard for Admetus's suffering, and we were crying for our mistress. Heracles is simply doing exactly, exactly what Admetus promised Alcestis would not happen in their house after her death for a full year He's brought music and mirth, happiness and celebration into the home of a family in mourning. And, the attendant adds, the servants have been instructed by Admetus not to show their tears or their grief, but just to wait upon this man who's showing them such incredible disrespect. The attendant finishes his speech, quote, she softened her husband's rage and saved us so often from pain. Aren't I right to hate this guest, this intruder in our suffering? And thus begins the third bit of drama in this oddly disparate, if very weird, tragic and yet comedic play. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
is episode 165. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions, Euripides' Alcestis. When the attendant has finished his speech explaining to the chorus and the audience what has been happening inside, all about Heracles' inappropriate behavior, how awful and rude he's being, he's then joined by Heracles himself, who stumbles out of the house drunk. And he asks the attendant why he's so serious. I'm a guest, he announces. Quote, attendants shouldn't be grim with guests. And then he proceeds to insert his entire Heraclean-sized foot, sandal and all, into his mouth. Not literally, in case it's not clear. He goes on, telling the attendant how he should actually behave with guests of his master's household. You should be welcoming and friendly. Then he says, quote, Come here so you can learn and be wiser. Do you know what it means to be immortal? I think not. How would you? Then he proceeds to lecture the attendant on the realities of death in mortals, how no one knows when they're going to die, they're all going to die someday, and that mortals have no say in their own fates. Yeah, he finishes this with, quote, So with this lesson of mine in mind, cheer up and have a drink. Today belongs to you. The rest belongs to choice. Seriously, this play, what even is it? He sounds like a bad psychic at a fair. The dramatic irony, the dark humor, the whole speech is just, it's something else. He's literally telling the guy who's just had an entire speech dedicated to expressing his and the entire household's grief at the death of Alcestis, specifically lamenting just how poorly they're being treated by Heracles in their grief, and here he is talking about how everyone is going to die someday, how no one can control their fate, so cheer the fuck up and have some fun. The phrase, read the room, comes to mind. But Heracles isn't done. This Heracles is every stereotype you might imagine. He's big and oafish, and he's no idea the gravity of the situation that he's in. He thinks he has all the answers because he's Mr. Big Hero. But meanwhile, he sounds like the world's biggest asshole, and all en route to steal some man-eating horses, because Heracles has got a Heracles. He continues his unsolicited advice, telling the attendant he should put aside his grief, his utterly over-the-top grief, and just enjoy himself. Quote, haughty people with frowning faces are not, in my opinion, really living a life at all. They're living a calamity. What an enormously hilarious dickhead. Finally, though, the attendant responds. Yes, we get it, he says, but today isn't really a great day for drinking and laughter. Why not? asks Heracles. <laughs> The woman who died is a stranger. What's the big deal? Why is everyone so fucking depressed? It's basically what he says, though I made a little showier, of course. But he adds very explicitly that the masters of the house still live. Uh, what? They live? The attendant repeats, quote, don't you know what's happened? Psh, yeah, of course I do, Heracles replies, if your master hasn't lied to me. This seems to make things clearer to the attendant than Heracles. He replies only to note that Admetus loved to play the host too much. Should I have been more concerned about an outsider's death? Heracles asks. To which the attendant replies, and this sarcasm is in the translation. It's my time to shine. Quote, an outsider, all right. 
That's what she was. And now, slowly but surely, Heracles starts to, okay, can slowly understand what's going on. He asks whether Admetus lied to him, and the attendant notes that it is not a good time for him to be a guest, but that Admetus's pain is their concern, not Heracles's. And then again, slowly but surely, Heracles whittles down who exactly has died. Not a child or his father, he asks first. Nope, the attendant replies. It was Alcestis, Admetus's own wife. <gasps> Awkward is certainly what Heracles feels, though he doesn't say. Quote, she died and then you entertain me? The attendant confirms that, yes, that's exactly what's happening, because Admetus was too ashamed to turn him away as a guest. To which Heracles replies, once again, to refer to Alcestis in her newfound martyr fashion. What a wife. What a wife. With the truth of the situation finally revealed, Heracles feels pretty bad to have been so completely unaware of what was going on. Admetus, his friend, is off burying his wife and uh, he was just inside drinking and singing? He feels awful about it and he asks the attendant where he will find Admetus. Where is he burying her? The attendant tells him, giving him instructions on where he will find Admetus, where he will find Alcestis's tombstone. And, well, Heracles doesn't respond to him. He's just an attendant. Instead, he begins a monologue with the attendant standing right there. He begins, quote, You, my much-enduring heart and hands, show now what kind of son Alcamini, child of Electrion of Tyrans, bore to Zeus. Leave it to Heracles to compliment himself while ostensibly speaking of a woman's tragic martyr death. But he goes on, no, this isn't all about him. It's just that, well, he's got a plan. He's got a plan that he came up with just right there on that spot. It's a good plan. Definitely. Well thought through. Certainly not spur of the moment. Definitely not ridiculous. Certainly realistic and not wild and absurd. That's right. Heracles announces to the attendant, the chorus, and the audience in the theater that... His solution for how badly he feels at celebrating while Admetus mourned is to bring Alcestis back from the dead. Which, sure, could sound incredibly heroic and dramatic, kind of beautiful. I mean, what a gift it would be not only to Alcestis and Admetus, but to the whole of their household, their children, these servants who grieve for her. What a gift! And I mean it is, but it's perhaps less heroic sounding when you hear his actual plan. Quote, I'll go and watch for the Lord of the Dead, death in his black robe. I'll find him, I expect, drinking the blood of offerings by the tomb. And if I ambush him and grab hold, clasping him in the circle of my arms and crushing his ribs, no one will release him until he gives up the woman to me. He's going to squeeze Thanatos real tight until he gives up a dead woman. What is this play? I love it so much. 
But not to worry, if you think that maybe, just maybe, squeezing Thanatos, the god of death, literal death himself, real, real hard until someone gives up a dead woman isn't going to work, Heracles has a backup plan. That's right, he's not crazy. No, no, he's thought this through. If he loses Thanatos, or if he doesn't find him drinking the blood of sacrifice by the tomb like he expects, if squeezing him real tight doesn't work, well, in that case, he'll travel to the underworld itself all the way to the realm of the dead. And mind you, this is before he got Cerberus as one of his labors. He'll travel all the way to the land of the dead to bring Alcestis back. That is the only reasonable response to feeling badly about not knowing that the household was grieving her death. A proportionate response, to be sure. Heracles has determined the only plan of action to make up for how rude he was, if inadvertently, in the House of Admetus. He will bring Alcestis back from the dead, one way or another. And once he's made this announcement that really can only be read as comedic, he just leaves the stage in the direction that Admetus brought Alcestis's body, presumably in the hopes that he will catch Thanatos there by the grave and squeeze him so tight he'll give Alcestis up to the world of the living. So much for the concrete will of the fates, I guess. With Heracles offstage, the attendant, too, returns to the house, just as Admetus returns to the stage with his attendants, but they're no longer accompanied by Alcestis's body. Admetus is singing of his sadness. He's lamenting his new life without Alcestis, unsure where to go or what to do or say without her. Quote, I envy the dead. I long for them. Their home is where I love to live. Which, I mean, dude, you explicitly asked your wife to die for you and now you're wishing you were dead? You literally could be in the world of the dead right now and your wife could be living happily with your children. This is entirely on you. Still, the man is sad. We will let him be sad. Suppose he didn't quite imagine what it would feel like for the love of his life to die for him and how he'd have to live on in the world without her. He begins to sing along with the chorus, expressing his grief in sounds and cries. Oi, moy, oi, moy. The chorus tells him that he'll never see his wife again. That's where his pain comes from. He replies to them, quote, What greater calamity is there than for a man to lose his faithful wife? I'm going to try to not just point out every time he says shit like this that is entirely and completely his fault, and not even in a tragic, oh no, can't believe this happened kind of way. No, he literally asked her to die for him, and he doesn't seem to be taking any responsibility for that. He's acting like she's died by some other means, something not by his actual choice. They go on and on, though. The chorus tries to reassure him, to remind him that people often must face such tragedies, and they have to go on to move forward. That's what life is. And while he often interrupts them mid-sentence with his cries of sadness, Oi moy, oi moy, he asks them, quote, Why did you stop me from hurling myself into her empty grave, lying with her in death, she who was best of all? Hades would have gained not just one, but two faithful lives together. I won't say it again, but you know what I'm thinking. 
The chorus continues trying to reassure him. They tell him a story of someone else who lost a loved one, their only child. But that this man bore his pain. He survived, even though he was old and aged and had no other children. But Admetus just keeps talking about his own grief and tragedy. He doesn't even register what they're saying to him. Quote, Roof, walls, doors of my house, how can I go inside? Live here with my life so changed, so different, oi moi. And this is where I like to think the chorus decides they've had enough of his bullshit. They've been listening to all of this without pointing out the irony involved, the absurdity of everything Admetus has been saying. But they're done. After he continues to lament his life, his sadness, his lost relationship with the love of his life, they tell him, quote, You spared your body. You saved your life. Your wife died and left behind your love. What's new in this? If you think Admetus was his most obnoxious before this, too, strap the fuck in. His response to the chorus reminding him, Dude, this is on you. You made this decision and now you're having to live with it. He says, quote, I believe, my friends, her lot is happier than mine. Yeah, that's what he says. And he's not done. He goes on, quote, No pain will ever reach her, and she gained fame and put an end to many troubles. He keeps on like this, asking how he will ever exist in his own home now. Where can he turn? He's so lonely, he'll be driven away, driven mad. How can he handle the sight of their empty bed? How can he face his children, his servants? Seriously. I just, I can't keep quoting this, but just know that he does not stop. He's now explicitly talking about how his own pain is so much worse than death because he has to live without her. Which I mean, like, I think that might be a reasonable thing to say if one is grieving the death of a loved one. But when they did not explicitly ask for that person to die on their behalf, therein lies the big issue, Admetus. And well, then he does finally take some semblance of responsibility for the situation, if only in the form of worrying people will be judging him for what he did. Which, I mean, I, I hope they are. Quote, Someone, an enemy, will say, Look at him, he lives in shame. He couldn't stomach dying, so to escape it, the coward gave Hades his wife instead. After that, he pretends to be a man. Like, yeah, that, that's exactly what happened. He laments this fame that he will now have, how their words and his own suffering is all he'll have left. <sighs> the chorus begins to sing, not of Admetus nor Alcestis, but of the pains of necessity, the personification of the concept, the very idea of necessity in life. They finish their song by continuing to reassure him, to remind him that Alcestis was loved in life and will continue to be loved in death. They then sing of Alcestis as a hero, as the woman who died in place of her husband. And then Heracles returns. And he's not alone. Once the chorus has sung of the sadness of Alcestis, of her gross and sad martyrdom, Heracles returns to the stage accompanied by someone. It's a woman, yes, but she's wearing a veil. We can't see who she is. 
Heracles speaks to Admetus immediately, raising his concerns about how Admetus handled his arrival as a guest, how he didn't tell him that the woman who had died was his own wife, that he was intruding upon the household's grief. He tells Admetus that this was wrong, that he was left to be unaware, and in being unaware, deeply disrespectful. He says he wants to be mad about this, but he also doesn't want to hurt Admetus when he's already hurting so much already. Now, he says, let me explain who this woman is who's with me. I've brought her to you to keep her safe. Heracles tells Admetus that he's killed the king of the Bistonians and that he's brought back those Thracian mares as Eurystheus ordered as part of his labors. He has to bring them back to Eurystheus now, all the way to Tyrion, so he wants to leave this woman with Admetus for safekeeping. He tells him to keep her in his house as a servant. He says he went through quite a bit to get her. That he came upon men holding an athletic competition, and there he won her as a prize. You know much I love women as prizes. He explains some more details that we don't care about before explicitly saying that he didn't steal her. He won her with skill and effort, and that now he's giving her to Admetus. Admetus, though, doesn't want this woman. He asks Heracles to please, please bring her to any of his other friends in Thessaly instead. That if Admetus were to keep her, he would only be more sad than he already is. He goes on to ask where she will live in the house, because she's young and, quote, how will she remain pure, moving around among young men? Ugh. Even better, his next suggestion is what... Should I bring her into my dead wife's bed? What will people think? <laughs> I have truly lost all of my patience with Admetus. But hey, at least he's funny, because he continues, quote, Woman, whoever you are, know you have Alcestis's size and shape. You look just like her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Heracles then notes that he wishes he could bring Alcestis back from the dead and return her to Admetus. This play is just so weird. I will never get over it. From here, the pair launch into a back and forth where Heracles does agree that Admetus has lost a wonderful, noble wife, the best wife in Alcestis, but that time will help to ease his pain and that, well, quote, a new wife will cure your longing. Admetus, to his credit, says no, absolutely not, and that Heracles shouldn't even speak such a thing. But then when Heracles counters, asking him, what, you'll never remarry? Admetus says no one would want him. They go on like this, with Admetus explaining that he promised his dying wife that he wouldn't remarry, that he wouldn't betray her in this way. May he die if he does. Heracles returns to the question of the strange woman standing there, veiled, asking Admetus to take her into his house. Admetus doesn't want to. He keeps pushing back. Heracles tells him he'll be making a big mistake to trust him. It's just what he needs. <laughs> Finally, Admetus agrees, but he's super mad about it, wishing that Heracles had never won this woman as a prize in the first place. He's like, okay, fine. I can't convince you otherwise, so I will take her, but she must just go away. And Heracles is honestly basically just winking super obviously at this point. He says he knows something, that he wants Admetus to take her himself. 
<laughs> I honestly can't tell if it's meant to be dramatic at all. I mean, maybe, but it comes off as mostly comedic in the text. I'm just so curious how it would have been played. It's bizarre. Like, the chorus all knows that Heracles made his bizarre pronouncement that he was going to squeeze Thanatos until he gave Alcestis up, and then he arrives with this veiled woman who, uh, you know, looks just like her, and he works this hard to convince Admetus to take her. At one point, Admetus is like, okay, fine, she can come into this house. Hey, attendant, why don't you go take her in? And then again, nearly winking his entire face, Heracles is like, oh, well, no, no, I don't think she should go with an attendant. I only trust her with you. He might as well be jabbing Admetus with his elbow, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, get it, Admetus, get it? <laughs> Finally, Admetus says, and these next bits are all quotes, you force me to do this against my will. Heracles says, Courage! Reach out your hand and touch the stranger. I reach out my hand as if beheading a gorgon, Admetus says as he takes hold of the woman's arm. You have her? Yes, Admetus says. Keep her safe. <laughs> and then he pulls off the woman's veil and, Oh, what do you know? Can you believe it? Big surprise. Who saw this coming? Not me. It's Alcestis. Quote, look at her. Does she look like your wife? <laughs> I love that Heracles had to spell it out for Admetus. Not totally certain who needed the obvious reveal more, like, but it really adds to the comedy. But, well, there she is. Admetus can't believe it at first, which, I mean, who, who blames him? It is super weird and not even a thing that happens elsewhere in Greek mythology. Like, even Orpheus failed in bringing back Eurydice. This is an absolute one-off, which in itself makes this play so much weirder. But in the end, Heracles convinces Admetus that this is, in fact, his wife. Quote, This friend of yours doesn't conjure with ghosts. Admetus is in shock, and Alcestis is just standing there while these two men talk about her. It's just so bizarre. He doesn't speak to her, though. He doesn't even try. Before he even clocks that she stayed so silent, he's already asked Heracles how he got her back, an explanation of which that takes up, like, literally two lines. Quote, I fought with a god who was in charge of her. Beside her tomb, I ambushed him and grabbed him. Squeezing Thanatos real hard worked. <laughs> and this, this is when Admetus asks why she's remained silent. And Heracles explains to him that, uh, well, he's not actually allowed to hear her voice yet, that she can't speak until she's been back for three days, and then she'll be released from the bond that she has now with the underworld. Sure. And he just tells Admetus to bring her inside. He turns down an offer to be a guest once more. He's got some man-eating horses to return to Eurystheus. And so with a wave, he's gone. Admetus has a quick announcement to his people that they should celebrate and sacrifice to the gods. Quote, For the life I now adopt is better than the life before. I won't deny I'm lucky. And uh, the chorus adds simply, quote, Divinity takes many forms. The gods accomplish many startling things. What we expect does not take place, and the god makes way for the unexpected. And so it came about in this affair. And Alcestis remains silent.
Thank you all for listening. I am honestly so excited to share both the Helen and the Alcestis again. They deserve to be appreciated as many times as possible. They're both incredible and deeply underrepresented and just like more amazing evidence that Euripides actually cared to look at women's stories, whatever they might have been, and I love him for it. Happy New Year. See you all on the other side. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, better known as the assistant producer, who will have been working with me for two years right about now. Bananas. How is that possible? How far have we come? Hi, Michaela. You're great. Laura Smith is now the production assistant and audio engineer. What? I have two people working with me? It's really fucking cool. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Also cool. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Just visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I love this shit so much. The Alcestis was bananas. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information live nation presents concert week now through may 14th get 25 dollars tickets to over 5,000 shows that's up to 75 percent off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 savage alanis morissette cage the elephant celeste barber dirk spentley fade hootie and the blowfish janet jackson kids bob kids megan trainer fistle puma sarah mclaughlin get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just 25 dollars until now through may 14th Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.